This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by Broadway in Tucson. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, a conversation with Julie Cohen and Betsy West. They're the co-directors of the film Gabby Giffords Won't Back Down. Meet Denise Lay, the new executive director of the nonprofit Homicide Survivors Incorporated. And visitors to the 39th International Dream Convention join together to explore that mysterious realm where we have all traveled before. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. The first two stories on this week's show are about the results of gun violence and surviving after losing a loved one to homicide. While nothing graphic will be discussed, we do understand that these topics are not appropriate for all listeners. We'll never know the role that former Congresswoman Gabby Giffords might have played in American life after she was targeted in a mass shooting in Tucson on January 8, 2011. Giffords was one of more than a dozen people injured that day. Six others were killed. The documentary film Gabby Giffords Won't Back Down follows her ongoing journey of recovery, including having to relearn all of life's most important functions. The film is the latest collaboration from my first guests, Julie Cohen and Betsy West. They're an acclaimed directorial team who've also made films about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Julia Child, and Pauli Murray. Betsy West will begin. Neither Julie nor I were in Tucson in 2011, but like most Americans, uh, we became aware of Gabby Giffords when we heard the horrible news that she had been shot in the mass shooting in the supermarket parking lot and, and were just horrified. Six people were killed and more than a dozen injured. And then 10 years later, we had the opportunity to meet Gabby and her husband and uh, to begin working on this movie. What was it that brought you into doing this documentary film? We like to tell the stories of consequential, spectacular women. The documentary about Justice Ginsburg, RBG, is probably what we're most well-known for, but we've done others, and Gabby Giffords just fit the bill of someone who has made an enormous impact on our society, but is also just on a personal level, like an incredible character with a beautiful, uplifting, surprising, romantic story that we thought would make a great film. What about the resources that you were going to have at your disposal? I mean, what sorts of places did you begin partnering with in order to get the material you needed to tell the story? The resources for the production of the film came from CNN Films and Time Studios. But in terms of the incredible archival material, much of that was the personal archive that was gathered and even filmed over the years by Gaffy Giffords and Mark Kelly, who made the somewhat unusual decision to document so much of his wife's early days in rehab, thinking that when she recovered, and he was confident that she would recover, she was going to want to understand and see what she'd been through. 
So coming out of the opening credits, incredibly upbeat montage of the high points of Gabby's political career, her eloquence in front of audiences, her sense of humor, all of that comes through before the opening credits are even over. And then suddenly we find ourselves in the hospital with her. How many different starting points do you remember discussing between yourselves as directors? Or was this always the way that you felt it needed to go? This is Betsy. I think we thought we had to give viewers an idea of Gabby Gifford, the rising politician, uh, the political star, as uh, President Obama called her. And then when we saw the footage that uh, her husband had captured of her recovery, of this slow, grueling process that it took for her to come back from an almost unimaginable injury, it turned out to be, you know, really pretty fascinating, poignant at first to see Gabby struggling, but also encouraging when you see from one day to the next that she was slowly making progress. So it was pretty early on our decision that that material was so powerful, so fascinating, so informative that we were going to try to to pretty much lead with it. In the months that it must have taken you to make the film, what was it like to carry that tragedy around with you all the time? Or did it feel that way? Did it feel like a tragedy while you were working with all that archival material and and covering the scene of the shooting and everything else? This is Julie. You know, it's a really good question because on paper, I think Gabby's story starting in 2011 really does kind of read and sound like a tragedy. But when you're spending time with her as a person, as we were so much in 2020 and 2021, Um, tragic is just not a word that's on your mind. She is just such a remarkably buoyant, upbeat, you know, funny person, always singing with such an interesting perspective on the world that you kind of forget that the reason, you know, that what brought her into our orbit was telling this story that has so much pain and trauma in it, because she's just not a person that's kind of giving out a trauma vibe. She's giving out a warm, loving, and happy vibe. Yeah, I mean, this is Betsy. Uh, Gabby may have trouble speaking words, but she has no trouble communicating. She's got all different ways to communicate with looks and gestures and just the right word at the right moment. A lot of singing. So as Julie said, uh, we had a lot of fun (laughs) making this film. Tell us about some of the interviews that you collected from people who knew Gabby or who were involved in the story. Yeah, this is Betsy. We did interview President Obama, and um, we'll tell you that we had actually tried to interview former President Obama for two previous documentaries, and he had turned us down flat. When we asked uh, his representatives if we could talk to him about Gabby Giffords, it took about 24 hours before we got a yes. And I think that's a real measure of how much he respects and loves Gabby. Uh, She was someone who uh, he saw as a rising star in the Democratic Party, whose career was somewhat parallel to his, who was a kind of natural politician and someone who reached across the aisle and had a great future, as he said in the interview to us. And of course, he came to Tucson 
for a memorial for those who were killed and then visited Gabby when she was still in a coma. And then, of course, there were the people in Tucson who spoke to us, Ron Barber, who had been Gabby's aide at the time and then went on to take her place in Congress and was very seriously injured himself in the shooting. He gave an extraordinary account to us, first of all, of Gabby as a young politician, someone he obviously admired greatly and had tremendous hopes for. He told us how he and Gabby were starting to talk about her plans potentially to uh, run for the Senate. And then his perspective on the day of the shooting, he was there and recounted what happened to us. Very obviously painful time for him and for all of those family members in Tucson who still carry the burden of that horrible day. And I think in a very matter-of-fact way, there were others in, in Tucson uh, we spoke to, I mean, many, many people close to, to Gabby who really gave us a feel for her. And then, of course, her husband. Julie Cohen and Betsy West, I want to thank you so much for talking to me today and telling uh, me about the process behind this film. And I'd like to know uh, from each of you, one of those life-changing moments that might have occurred in the process of making it that is really going to stay in your heart. There was a really special moment for us fairly early in our filming where Gabby was in her garage getting ready to take her daily ride on her recumbent bike. I know the citizens of Tucson are quite aware of that. Um, But we were with Gabby in the garage watching the process that she has to go through to get ready to ride the recumbent bike. And it's really not easy. It's a little bit complicated. The right side of her body is partially paralyzed, so she needs some special equipment. And uh, it takes a while to get all suited up. And you would think it could be kind of cumbersome. But Gabby gets through that, like so many things, by playing music. And she had an 80s mix come on. And you 2s still haven't found what I'm looking for, came on her sound system. And the sheer lack of inhibition and joy and total focus with which Gabby beautifully sang that song uh, you know, in the midst of this sort of very mundane process of getting ready to ride the bike, was so moving that even just during the filming of the scene, Betsy and I um, both teared up. You know, I'll, I'll also say that I loved spending time with Gabby and Mark because they're just a really fun couple. And I would say one of my uh, favorite moments in filming was watching Gabby as the political wife, giving Mark a few suggestions about how to deliver his maiden speech on the floor of the U.S. Senate. Any uh, married couple will probably relate to Gabby's kind of insistence to Mark that he slow down, (laughs) stand up straight, take a deep breath. And, you know, Mark kind of getting a little exasperated and then making a very adorable joke. I think, um, you know, they really do have a fantastic feminist love story where they have each supported each other over various times in their lives. Talk about for better or worse. And, um, you know, I found their relationship to be pretty inspiring. Julie Cohen and Betsy West are the co-directors of Gabby Gifford's Won't Back Down. It's now playing in more than 300 theaters across the nation, including many in Arizona. 
wake of any mass shooting, people around the world feel shock and sorrow for the lives that were lost. Though the number can fluctuate greatly, consider this. Each time someone is killed, there are an average of seven individuals who are left behind, people who are in need of counseling and support. That figure comes from Denise Lay, executive director of the local grassroots nonprofit Homicide Survivors Incorporated. We'll learn more in this interview conducted by Tony Paniagua. Denise Lay, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for allowing me the opportunity to be here with you today. And congratulations on being named the new executive director of Homicide Survivors. You share a long history with this organization. Can you tell us about that, please? Yeah, I've been doing this for over 15 years now. I was born in Nogales, Sonora. And from a very early age, my mom taught us to be involved in our community. She always instilled in us being of service and helping, you know, your neighbor, helping others out. And after college, I, I started to get involved in volunteering for missing and exploited children. And I saw this opportunity come up in the newspaper because it was 2007. So I went over and knocked on the door. At the time, Homicide Survivors was being housed under the county attorney's office. It was a small office and Gail Leland was the director there. And I knocked on her door and I asked her to give me a job. And after, you know, about three weeks of me going to her door and asking for it, she finally gave in and gave me the opportunity. And it's, you know, been history ever since. For those people who may not have heard, what is your main goal in Homicide Survivors? So the mission of Homicide Survivors is that no one should endure the murder of a loved one alone. The services that we provide is assistance, advocacy, and of course, support. Right now, we are at six staff people that work within our team, assisting not only with funeral, not assisting with media. If this is a case where it's unsolved and there hasn't been anyone arrested, assisting with becoming the liaisons between the family and uh, law enforcement. Additionally, if there has been an individual arrested, working alongside in partnership with the county attorney's office to provide that advocacy. So with a team of six, you can only imagine how hard that can be to accomplish. How would you describe the anguish, the trauma, the pain that people feel and what it's like for somebody in your position to try to make a difference in their lives? First of all, not many people know about our organization unless you've been impacted by homicide. One of the other things that we hear frequently is that homicide is not like any other grief that people experience, of course, not being planned. And additionally, because of the trauma that revisits them over and over and over again, this is definitely something that people do not just get over and being in the presence of other people that have experienced a homicide or know what you may be experiencing and are receiving that support and are receiving a roadmap from somebody like homicide survivors that tells you when we first speak with families, they come to us and tell us, this is day one. They just gave me the news. I don't know what to do next. And so we normalize that feeling saying, yes, that absolutely makes sense. I am so sorry. Not knowing what to do next is absolutely normal and it's okay. And let me show you the way. And I think that is super helpful to, for families to hear and giving them information slowly and repeating information often 
and letting them know what are the next steps. Denise, we know people process traumatic events differently. Everybody's an individual, of course. But do you find that there are some commonalities among the people who have experienced a very severe loss or traumatic events such as a homicide? Yeah, I would agree that everyone is different within their journeys. But what we often see is immediately after a homicide happens, people experience severe anxiety. They're unable to sleep. They have extreme fear. In times like this where there is a rise in homicides and there is very traumatic events going on nationwide, at times worldwide, every time something like that happens, they experience those emotions no matter really where they're at within their journey, they're triggered by it. Extreme anxiety, extreme sadness, extreme anger, the inability to sleep, like all of those things come back to them. They're not really able to retain information. There's extreme loss of memory and, you know, of events. Um, and, And those are some of the things that we see that are common that people experience. Also, as an executive director, my responsibility is to make sure that staff is being taken care of emotionally, mentally, has the support, not only from myself, but our board of directors, to know that if they need to step away for a few days, a few hours, or something's going on, that it is absolutely safe, necessary, and encouraged to be able to do that in order to best serve our survivors in our community. Your organization helped more than 1,600 survivors of homicides last year. Can you tell us about that, please? Since COVID began, Tucson, in comparison to other town cities within the U.S., has had a significant spike in homicides. I believe the last time that we had looked at this, there's been at least a 40% uh, jump in homicides. With that, you know, we assist our homicide survivors. One of the things that we've also seen since our services have gone online, that's including support groups, that's including case management sessions, in comparison to other years, we are seeing survivors not only from Southern Arizona, but from other states as well. So people from California calling in, people from South Dakota, people from Maryland, people from Colorado, survivors that we are serving that are not only within our community, but elsewhere. What would you say to somebody who is listening to this interview and says, you know what, I I want to do something? What would be most beneficial to your organization? I would say that everyone knows somebody that has been impacted by homicide. Everyone. If you are able to get involved. We have great volunteer opportunities that you can seek out and go to our website and fill out a volunteer application and we will get in contact with you and get you involved um, directly working with survivors or helping us out with events, memorial events or raising funds. Additionally, what would be great support to us right now because of uh, budget cuts that we've had because of the time of year that we're in, and because there has been a significant rise in homicides since the pandemic began, I would say if you are able to donate money um, to also go to our website and do that there directly, or if you are a frequent shopper at Amazon or Fry's, you're able to sign on and make some dollars and cents go to us if you're able to add us on there to your Amazon Smile and to Fry's Rewards as well.
Tony Paniagua spoke with Denise Lay, Executive Director of Homicide Survivors Incorporated in Tucson. If you or someone you know would benefit from their services, you can find them online at homicidesurvivorsinc.org. Some people say they never remember their dreams, but some of us remember too much. Exploring the reasons why is just one of a multitude of angles explored year-round by the International Association for the Study of Dreams. This week, that organization welcomed authors, researchers, artisans, and enthusiasts to Tucson for the 39th annual Dream Conference. Leah Britton was there. My name is Dr. Michelle Carr. I'm a sleep and dream researcher. I work at the University of Rochester right now studying uh, the relationship between dreams and nightmares and mental health. Can you define nightmares and how they're significant to all of us? A nightmare is just a pretty intense negative dream. Um, Often in research we also say it, it might be so intense that it wakes you up. And they can be kind of clinically important because when they happen very frequently, they really disrupt someone's sleep and they can cause a lot of waking distress, so really interfere with somebody's life. Certain types of dreams are associated with a more positive mood and feeling more refreshed in the morning, feeling like you've rested very well. And some of it's just related to having positive emotion in your dreams, but then there's certain themes that we see, like having flying dreams or having really positive social dreams that came up a lot during COVID, that these types of experiences really um, impact our mood and impact how we feel in a positive way in waking life. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden. Some people know me as Dr. Dream. I spoke yesterday. My talk was called A Nightmare is a Terrible Thing to Waste, and it's all about transforming our nightmares from tragic to magic. Often, when we look at our lives, the things that change us most, even though I'd like to say it's the really happy, positive things, those are great, but it's the difficulties and the way that we face those that really mark our radical transformation. So I feel that our nightmares are, they're they're helping us to radically wake up to who we are. So it's as if we're sleepwalking mostly through our lives, and it's strange to think of dreams as an awakening tool, but they truly are. My name is Tyrell Blackmoss. My pronouns are he, they. I'm the founder of Dream School, and I am a Sangoma, a South African traditional healer, and I walk in the traditions of my ancestors and descendants. What's the importance of having representation and diversity in dream work in this community? In our traditions, the dreams are a very fluid space, and so you're unable to stay within binaries of race or gender when you move through the dream realm. And so that's something that we embody, that's something that's part of our ancestral traditions to move with a certain fluidity. And so we believe that we we are the originals of that fluidity. And so to exclude us from dream practices, from dream conferences, is it's racist. It is a, an example of colonization to not include black and indigenous people. 
What are some things that have stood out to you in your own spiritual and dream work journey? The ability to shift the material world. Some of my journey, I was homeless for about 18 months. And in the process of slowing down and really being close to the land and listening to the messages of my dreams, I was able to build a international dream ecosystem where now I am teaching people how to interact with their dreams. I'm Jeanette Mungail. I'm a professor of anthropology at Washington State University. So I think that during the day, our verbal mind thinks about practical problems, problems we need to solve to survive, to get on with our lives, to get our work done. But at night, I think we use a different mind, an image-based mind that thinks not in words but in images and thinks about problems of meaning. And not only individual problems of meaning, but thinks about the way we construct meaning in a more general sense. In what ways do you believe the pandemic has changed dreaming? I don't think it's changed dreaming per se. It's just, from a dreaming point of view, it's another problem of meaning. Hi, I'm Robert Wagoner. I'm the author of Lucid Dreaming, Gateway to the Inner Self, and co-author of the book Lucid Dreaming, Plain and Simple. What would you tell someone that's interested in finding that control? So it takes a little bit of a time to learn lucid dreaming or how to realize that you're dreaming while within the dream. And one of the easiest ways is just the power of suggestion. Like before you go to sleep, tell yourself, tonight in my dreams I'll realize I'm dreaming and become lucidly aware. Or tell yourself, tonight in my dreams I'll be more critically aware and when I notice something strange, I'll realize I'm dreaming. Something that simple can launch you on the lucid dreaming path. What drew you to look closer at lucid dreaming? I taught myself how to lucid dream in 1975, five years before the scientific evidence came out that proved lucid dreaming existed. And so what I discovered, though, you're kind of in your own virtual reality, and there's incredible things you can do to access creativity, to engage what I call your larger awareness. And so it just became more beautiful and creative and fulfilling the deeper I went into it. What makes lucid dreaming so much more fulfilling than just your typical dream? Because you're consciously aware of dreaming, then you can decide what you want to do. If you're an artist and want to access creativity, you can say, hey, dream, show me the most incredible art I can create, and suddenly it'll appear on the walls. Or if you're an engineer and want to figure out a problem, hey, dream, show me how to figure out this problem I'm having in my waking life. And suddenly you see this response and you go, oh my God. So you have an incredible open platform to access creativity. And that's what I think makes it powerful for everybody. Leah Britton talked to some of the presenters and guests at the International Association for the Study of Dreams 39th Annual Dream Conference. It runs through Friday, July 21st at Lowe's Ventana Canyon Resort, Tucson. You can find photos and links to some of the presenters on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. Production assistance by Leah Britton. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Thank you to Broadway in Tucson for their support of Arizona Spotlight.